Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Now to a man I'm sure will shatter the image we have in our minds of Australian politicians. And this is a man who made it to the top as a former Premier of South Australia. Lynn Arnold was Premier for just over a year in the early 90s. He took on an unenviable role in the wake of the collapse of the State Bank and the resignation of the former Premier John Bannon. Then Lynn Arnold took the Labor Party to an unwinnable election in 1993. They were heavily defeated. There are so many things about this man who will challenge our observations and preconceptions of politicians and politics. Here are just two recent examples. He's taken himself off to theological college to study and is now discerning the next step that God has for his life. How about this? He's also reversed a lifelong battle with the bulge, losing about 25 kilos, all in the name of a very good cause. Lynn Arnold is a former chief executive of World Vision and Anglicare, who says his time in politics was a third good, a third bad, and a third terrible. And I'm so glad to say that Lynn Arnold joins us now from his home in Adelaide. Lynn, welcome to Open House. Thank you very much, Lee. Good to be here. Wonderful to have you with us. Notwithstanding the heights you achieved in politics, Lynn, and considering the kind of man you are, do you ever find it curious that you were part of that rough-and-tumble world? Oh, no. From the youngest age, I have always been interested in politics. Uh, at the age of six, I wanted to be prime minister when my mates wanted to be policemen and firemen. Mm. Of course, we all failed. They never got to be policemen and firemen, and I never got to be prime minister. But I'd been interested in politics for a very long time, and uh, I knew that it was in my system, and that I was very fortunate to be able to express it. And I don't have a view that this is sort of contradictory to Christians being involved because no. in society we uh, have to be involved in society and that brings with it things that are good, bad and ugly. And, uh, and a Christian has an obligation to try and do something from a Christian perspective on that. Did the cost of it all surprise you? I think it clearly seems to have if it was a third good, a third bad and a third terrible. Oh, if one expected politics to be all an easy ride, then one wasn't doing one's job properly for a start. And secondly, if politics is only about dealing with the simple problems, who's dealing with the complex problems? Yes. So uh, I really was trying to say to people, it has its moments when it's exhilarating. It has its moments when it is uh, very, very challenging, very daunting, overwhelming even. But that's the way it's always going to be. And so I, I regarded myself as privileged that I had the chance to serve in it, notwithstanding that only a third of the time was good. Did much of it surprise you? I'm sure you went into it with eyes wide open, but those challenges, the depths of uh, those challenges, how much well, surprised you? I mean, obviously, challenges uh, of, of the greatest sort were those that you had no idea were going to come. They would come out of nowhere. And some of the greatest crises that I had to face in my time had come uh, from nowhere. And I guess that shouldn't surprise you, because if, if, if a crisis is predictable, then you'll, you'll avoid getting there in the first place. The kind of crises that blew up would sometimes surprise me. I think what uh, might have been a bit of a surprise, too, is the way in which uh, people reacted in the community to, to messaging. And I had to learn an awful lot about how one communicates to people about what you're trying to do. You know, you'd say something and you'd think people might have heard you saying it, and then you discover that they heard something else. And it wasn't a fair response on my part or any politician's part to simply say, well, you should have heard what I said. <laughs> no, it, it more validly asked the question about, well, how effectively were you in communicating? And I had to, as do other politicians, time and again, relearn the message of communication. 
to say nothing of that challenge in this day and age. The nature of the game is today, some 20 years on, a world away from what you knew and experienced. As you see it unfold, how do you reflect on the nature and conduct of politics? Uh, well, first of all, the, the way in which media operates is different to my time. Social media now is, presents a much quicker news cycle, yes. and that becomes a fact of life which would be really interesting for politicians today to have to respond to. What, however, worries me in today's politics, and I think something that is manageable, is that the major players in politics are spending too much time responding in the wrong way to what Vox Populi is saying. They are, in some senses, pandering to Vox Populi rather than trying to show some leadership to it. The use of focus groups has totally changed. Previously, a focus group was to help... The, uh, the major players in politics understand what popular opinion was feeling, what were the so-called hot buttons, so that you then know that, well, that's an issue we have to work on. If we want to, to put a policy on something, we're going to have to work through the community perception on that point. What happened at the last federal election, which was, in my opinion, the, the nadir of elections in this country, was that both sides rushed to find out how they could satisfy the focus group opinion in the lowest common denominator way. And that's not leadership, that is followership of the worst kind. Do you fear that it's going to be harder and harder, or that it is already, for people of goodwill, good and honourable intentions, to make it into that game or to be bothered with it and survive and fulfil their best intentions? Well, I suspect to be bothered with it is the more worrying thing, because people may decide, why would I do that? Why would I subject myself to an assault? by uh, the media or all sorts of other things. And that'll be a real pity if people decide that, because I think there is a real strong feeling in the community wanting there to be some real leadership shown on issues to actually have a proper discourse, a proper debate about major differences of opinion, which we just didn't have last time around. There are people in federal politics who, who can do that very well but it's not being given the chance to to happen. Can I take you to your own time in politics? You led Labor to that significant defeat in 1993. It was their intention and your intention to stay on as Premier. Then a few months later, you had quite an intense experience with your faith. Take us through that. Yes, when I lost the election, which we knew we would lose, and frankly, of course, in the the nature of politics, it was an election that we had to lose because if we had won, it would have been a flaw in the whole democratic system given all the events that had happened leading up to it. But that being the case, having lost it, the party then asked me to stay on as leader of the opposition for a full term to then lose the next election because we had lost quite badly, and then a new leader would take over. And that was a, a fair enough proposition. I was prepared to be party to that. But I, uh, after a few months, realized that my heart wasn't in it, and I went through an intense period of reflection, and I used the Greek Orthodox Lent process to do that. I went through a, a cycle of 49 days of quite intense fasting of different sorts and prayer, and then in the last week, nightly services over seven nights running minimum of three hours a night to help me reach some clarity as to where God was calling me in, in my life. And at that point, it became clear that it was time for me to to move on. And uh, so I chose to announce uh, shortly afterwards, about three months later, that I'd be leaving politics and uh, did so. Is there a form of words that you can give us to explain why you left then after that period of reflection? What I really found happening is that I was being told, I felt, that I had finished my time and it was uh, important for me to look where my next calling should be. 
I was not serving myself well, I was not serving my party well, and I was certainly not serving the community well by staying on. And so uh, uh, it was time to look to something new, and, and, and as a result of that, I went overseas for two years to regather myself and my family. We had a wonderful two years rebuilding ourselves, and then came back and entered the not-for-profit sector, uh, World Vision and later Anglicare, and was able to bring something to that in a way that I might never have guessed before. What drove you to organisations like those, Anglicare, World Vision? The surprising thing is when I left politics, I wasn't actually thinking of going into the not-for-profit sector. I thought I would go into the business world. And after two years in Spain, starting my PhD and doing a business uh, qualification over there, I came back and was working for a company and enjoying it, but not feeling I was getting a great deal of real meaning out of it. And somebody at at the church we went to tapped me on the shoulder one day uh, and said, Lynn, you don't know this, but while you were away, I joined the board of World Vision, and they're looking for a new CEO. Would you be prepared to put your hat in the ring? My wife said, uh, well, why don't you at least think about it? Even though it will mean a move, we'll have to go from Adelaide to Melbourne. After having been away from family and friends for two years, uh, we'll have to move again. But why not at least see what's supposed to be happening? And after the process of going through the interview process, the board said they wanted me to be their preferred choice, and I then said, well, I need a week to consult with our children because they had been taken over to Spain summarily without a buy-year leave, dumped in schools where they couldn't speak the language and had to uh, figuratively sink or swim. And they, they swam, but nevertheless, it had been a real challenge for them. And so I said, this time around, they had the chance to say no. And if one of them said no, I said, we will not go. Two, in fact, said no. And I said, uh, well, now you have a week to give me your final view. And those two came back, and one of them said at the end of the week, Dad, this job was meant for you. Let's go. And I've always been so grateful to him for saying that because he took the longest to settle into Melbourne, but he never complained about having made that choice. He never said, why did I do that? He finally did settle very happily into Melbourne, but it did take a while. What a champion. Yes, you're quite right, quite a champion. I turned to our eldest daughter, who was the other no, I said, what are you going to say? So what can I say now? And I said, oh, come on, you can say no if you want. Oh, no, not after that. You know, <laughs> you know oh, this job's meant for you, Dad, let's go. You know. So uh, anyway, she said, we'll go, and if I don't like it, I'll come back by myself. And she's such a strong-willed young woman that she would have done that. But anyway, she's now happily married in Melbourne with two kids. And uh, oh, wonderful. So that was the start of that journey. Yeah. And it was, I was often asked, did it meet expectations? And I've... I said uh, it, 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 it met my expectations, albeit in ways I didn't expect. I expected it to be very fulfilling. I expected it to be a uh, entering a Christian home, because World Vision is a Christian organization. I did not expect it to be a Christian journey in the way that it was. My own understanding of uh, faith deepened so much as a result of my 11 years with them, going around the field and meeting some amazing people, doing God's work in amazing ways. And I also had the feeling of Ephesians 3.20, more than we can ask or imagine. And I had never expected that to happen, that you know, God's planning can be much more than you can ever anticipate by your own planning. I suspect it probably enlarged your view of God. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. certainly so. Yes, I was always a Christian, but this gave me so much more depth of understanding of the awesomeness of our God and uh, his love for humanity through his son. What a fabulous journey. And fast forward to last year, you actually returned to the Greek Orthodox Lent. 
what sparked that? And that was a journey of what you describe as valleys and peaks. What yes. were those highs and lows? My time at Anglicare was about to finish. I'd left World Vision after 11 years, gone to Anglicare, and I was on a five-year contract there. And I knew I'd have to look to the next phase of my life. I knew that in January this year I'd be singing the song, Will You Still Need Me? Will You Still Feed Me? <laughs> Hoping my wife would say yes. <laughs> so I knew that I had to plan for the next phase. And I thought, well, how do I do this in a meaningful way? And I thought, well, once again, you take it to God. And so I used the method of the Greek Orthodox Lent. Each night I made a point of, after my day's reading, finding a prayer that spoke to me, finding one and posting it on Facebook. I've gone back and looked at those prayers. They actually mirrored the kind of journey I was going through, and it was a journey of peaks and troughs. There were valleys there, and sometimes the valleys were quite deep. And I was quite stunned by that, and I said that to a friend, and he said, well, why did you not expect to encounter the fauna of the night? when you're going through this because if jesus could meet the beasts in the wilderness in his 40 days in the wilderness why wouldn't we meet things that would really be uh, challenging and indeed the process probably what needs that to be so that was quite an amazing experience this time around at the end of it i went through the seven days of services the first few days were not really doing a lot for me but then the the whole thing grew during the week and then by the final service, finishing as it does at 2.30 on the Sunday morning of Easter Sunday, at that Christos and Esti moment, it all came together. And so I told my board, not at 2.30 in the morning, I did wait till the next day. I'd been keeping them apprised of the journey, but I told them that I was now convinced I needed to move on. And so I gave three months' notice and uh, then went back to become a full-time student studying uh, theology. You're now halfway through those studies. Yes, yes. Where might those lead for you? I'm asked that question quite a lot. When, when I finish this graduate diploma and the formation process that I'm currently going through with the Anglican Church, I would be able to be ordained a deacon. If I then do some more studies, and it's still a bit indeterminate how much more is needed, probably be another six to nine months of full-time study, I would then be eligible to be ordained a minister. Now, I don't know what I'm being called to. I'm waiting, listening to God in this process. I'm preparing myself to be eligible to be either of those things. But God's calling may end up being something different. I may end up being a deacon. I may be a minister. I may be none of the above. But if I'm listening carefully enough, prayerfully enough, he will tell me where I should be going. And I'm very comfortable about that lack of certainty because it's only a lack of certainty by me. It's not a lack of certainty by God. A lot of people might be nervous about where it might head, but you're not, clearly. No, I'm actually quite excited by the, uh, by the sense of, yeah. uh, you know, at some point between now and sometime uh, next year, uh, this will all, God willing, and it literally is God willing, yes. fall into place. I mentioned one of your other most recent significant turning points of your life at the age of 64. You've got yourself really fit. And after that lifelong battle with the bulge, lost a great deal of weight. Where and how did that start? The, the, the weight loss decision started in August 2011. I suddenly had a feeling that, why am I so overweight? And I must be able to do something about it. I feel in control of my mind. I feel in control of much of my life. But my physical body, I never felt I was able to control. And I then decided by dietary means to start setting myself some reachable goals. Now, lose two kilograms in the next month. And then what I found is that those goals were being reached quite easily. And then in January last year, a good friend of mine, Lachlan Klein, 
he was climbing Mount Lofty. And he said, well, why don't you come up Mount Lofty? Which, for people who don't know Adelaide, is a big climb. There's, there's four <laughs> kilometres up, and uh, you, you obviously have to come back again. Yes. It is a tough climb. Mm. Uh, the first time I did it, we had to stop eight times while I gathered my breath and thought, is this ever going to end? <laughs> he and I have now done it about 70 times in the last 14 months, and now I'm carrying weights up. Um, we're going up at 5 o'clock tomorrow morning. I'll be carrying 15 kilograms. Um, I have on some occasions gone as high as 25 kilograms carrying up, which is the weight mm. I've lost effectively. Uh, you know, we're, we're doing it very easily. And there's something very significant that's driving you in all this as well, not just the weight loss. No, that's right. I uh, was asked by a mutual friend of ours, well, what's your goal? You should be having a goal on this. And I thought of, a, well, does this mean I'm going to lose some more weight? He said, no, 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 what's a, a, a goal that actually means something? And he said, what about Kokoda? And I suddenly thought that would be a very powerful goal to try and relate to something that is so quintessentially important to us as a, as a community, the spirit of those who are on places like Kokoda. And uh, so I've, I'm going to be walking Kokoda on the 17th of April, and I'm doing it in support uh, of Little Heroes Foundation because we have three grandchildren, one of them, Caitlin, who's now seven and a half, at the age of 20 months, embarked on a terrible journey uh, when she was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia and had a two-and-a-half-year rugged time of treatment. She's uh, in remission, and uh, God willing, will stay that way. Uh, she's a very feisty, healthy seven-and-a-half-year-old now. But the journey she went through, she had to be a real little hero, and so I'm, I'm doing it for her. Bravo. Can I with this question? You're one of such a very rare breed, not only in politics, but in life and especially in work, and particularly in politics, where you're clearly not defined by your job or what you do or the jobs that you've done. How would you explain the sense of equilibrium or that contentment that it looks like from the outside? Well, it, it was very important to make sure that I had things that balanced my life, so family was important. Uh, having people who are prepared to uh, to help keep you focused. The minister at our church, uh, Reg Piper at the time, used to spend time and come and spend an hour with me once every couple of months, and we would just talk and pray together. It was uh, it was a very powerful uh, support for me. To have other activities in addition to politics, even though I worked 60 to 70 hours a week on my job, I did other things intentionally to keep myself interested in, in other activities. Also, prayer was vital to the whole thing. To have a, a good prayer life was very important. And then the other thing was to understand that while it was very important what I was doing, it wasn't important just in itself. It was for a purpose. And so sometimes that meant that I had to clash with that importance. And so in the end, I, I crossed the floor on my own party uh, on six occasions because they saw something as important which I profoundly disagreed with. So I, I voted against things. And I felt that was an important statement to be able to make. And at the end of the day, you have the large God that you've discovered running this whole show. Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, as I said, I, from the youngest age, I had had a, a strong Christian faith, but I have learned so much more. And I know, as Paul says, for now I see through a glass darkly. Well, each day, I'm still seeing through a glass darkly, but less darkly than the day before. <laughs> And it's so much uh, more powerful now what I'm seeing than what I, I saw previously. Lynn Arnold, it's been such a treat speaking with you. I'm so glad you've joined us on Open House. And if you wouldn't mind, we'll uh, follow your Anzac Day Kokoda track exploits with great interest. All the more so now. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. Well, thank you, Lee. Thank you very much indeed.
God bless. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.